Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 87, Robert Hildebrand. Thanks for listening. Hope everything's going well with you, wherever you are. Thank you to many of you for contacting me, emailing me, in other words, after the last episode. You might recall, if you heard that one called GPS Geology, that I was looking for some feedback about you know, camera settings as I'm recording videos and basically just trying to learn a little bit about you, the radio listeners. And a few hundred emails later, uh, I've got a little sense uh, of who you all are and which countries you're in and that sort of thing. And if you did not uh, email me, no problem. (laughs) No problem. I still appreciate you listening to these things. Uh, So, yeah, I've, I've got, if you're curious, uh, one of the takeaways from all the feedback on the video stuff, I know this is a radio episode, and we are going to talk about geology today, for a change. <laughs> That's coming with Hildebrand in just a second. But uh, uh, I was asking last time, you know, is it worth it to record these videos out in the field in the highest resolution possible? In other words, 4K versus 1080p. HD. Barely know what I'm talking about now. And of course, there were many different opinions on that. But uh, many said, look, you basically, they said, you don't know what's coming down the road, technology wise, and you might want to use what you're doing now down the road. So why wouldn't you record it with the best quality possible? If storage is not an issue, if space and storage is not an issue, why wouldn't you just do the best that you can as far as capturing that stuff? And I liked that concept. I hadn't really thought about that before. So, I, you know, the, the, the most recent videos, and I, I was down in Arizona with Liz, and I spent time with my mom as well, uh, enjoyed our time away, but I always comment when we return from a vacation, um, feels good to come home to a place that you really like. I, I always wonder about people who do a vacation and they go, oh, my God, this is paradise. And, the, oh, crap, now i got to go back to where I live in my town. What a downer this is. I, don't, I, I feel the opposite. I know that's strange, but, yeah, I enjoy vacation, I guess, for a few days. But I like returning home, and I like returning to a place that excites me and feels very comfortable at the same time. So hopefully that's you too. But in our case, I always like coming home, getting back into what I've been doing. So, yes, we were on spring break and I was shooting some video. And to finish my thought there, after the feedback I got from many of you, I made sure to record in 4K 30, whatever that means. I learned from a number of you that 4K 60 is no good or overkill or I, I forget what they said, but. So from this point forward, at least this spring, I'm going to be recording in 4K 30. And even though the files are big and it takes a long time to process, uh, I'm going to stick with that for the while. And and just arrived home yesterday and uh, found the iPhone 13 Pro Max waiting for me that was sent. And uh, so I will slowly, it's funny what, what overwhelms people, you know, Liz is coming back to the yard, and she's saying, I just love working in the yard, but I'm just overwhelmed by all the stuff I have to do. 
I never have that with the yard, but I think I have that with a new gadget. <laughs> I get, I just have to break it into little steps. Otherwise, it's just too much for me. Anyway, I don't know if you can relate to that at all. So I will slowly ramp myself up using this new iPhone 13. And uh, maybe that will give me some more options to go along with what I just had to say. So the preamble today is thank you for all the emails. I received them all. I think I was pretty good about replying to each one. Um, so thank you for that feedback. It was nice to hear from you radio folks. Okay, on with the program today. In addition to, I think there were, let's see, yeah, there were two hiking videos that I did, one with myself by myself in Scottsdale, Arizona area when I was visiting my mom. And then Liz uh, joined me and we did a, an intense hike uh, above Tucson, Finger Rock Trail up towards Mount Kimball. Didn't get close to the top, but uh, good workout and interesting scenery and a little bit of geology as well. There is a third video from that time down in Arizona, in Tucson. And this is just a couple days ago, and I posted it yesterday. I dropped in at the home of a guy named Robert Hildebrand, and he is the topic of today's radio episode. And for a change, I have geology to talk about because to prepare for that drop-in visit, in other words, I'm, I'm back to trying some long-form interviews. I did a few of these la two years ago with uh, geologists that I consider important, interesting, and possibly not recognized, or their work is kind of discarded as out there or crazy or not relevant. It's not really my sole motivation, but it's part of it, I have to confess. And so this guy Hildebrand fits that description. And I think I will... Yeah, so first of all, if, if you listen to this radio episode on Bob Hildebrand and you become officially intrigued, there is, uh, whatever it is, 80-minute, like more than an hour interview with, with Bob in his backyard in Tucson. But I want to expand on my morning with him, which is not much more, by the way, I got to say, you know, I, 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 okay, I'll, t I'll tell you that story. And then I'll get into a little bit of Hildebrand's ideas and what I understand so far. So basically, I did a fair amount of reading on Hildebrand, his work before Tucson. Basically, in early March, I was trying to read a little bit every morning from the Hildebrand work, and I mostly was reading his first major Cordilleran paper. The Cordillera is a, a, a term referring to pretty much all the mountains in the North American West, from Alaska, to Alaska down to Mexico. The Cordilleran, or if you're in Canada, they pronounce it Cordillera. So, starting in 2009, Hildebrand's been publishing almost every year on the Cordillera. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. But it gets extremely interesting when you realize this guy is not affiliated with any university. He's essentially retired. He has a long history in the world of geology and has co-authored papers over the years with some geologists that are uh, well-recognized and in the game, essentially. 
But Hildebrand's this mystery man, and this visit to his home was the first of hopefully many steps in not only understanding him better, but understanding his work better. So to give you the, the I guess, uh, bite-sized version of this, Bob Hildebrand in the last 15 years has published a lot on a tectonic model that flies in the face of most everything that's been written in the last 50 years about the mountains of the American West. How about that? And let's just continue with that thought. His model is a collisional model that's going to sound vaguely familiar because I've been peddling a little bit of this already without really attributing it to Hildebrand. I've been, you might remember me talking about Basil Tickoff from the University of Wisconsin structural tectonics guy and Basil's been really spending a lot of time with a, a model a collisional model that says a hundred million years ago there was a tremendous accretion event where the insular superterrain out in the Pacific Ocean slams onto the western margin of North America and that collision uh, is most easily documented in western Idaho, at the western Idaho shear zone, close to Hell's Canyon, towns of McCall and Whitebird and Grangeville, is it Grangeville? Orofino, that country there. So I've already been kind of working on those themes, and I know that I reported to you what I was doing this past winter, and that was, you know, this this whole, you know, Rangelia and Friends, known as the insular superterrain hitting 100 million years ago, was kind of the basal collisional model. Well, Hildebrand is different, but also similar. Now, I, that, that I'm losing it right away. I, I know that Basil took off University of Wisconsin and Robert Hildebrand home address in Tucson. I mean, literally, no no affiliation. That was my first question to him in the interview. Hildebrand, are you, are you, you're in Tucson. Are you affiliated with the university? And he's like, well, not anymore. And I got off of that pretty quick because I, I don't know what happened. But he, he he's truly publishing papers with his home address. <laughs> and so he is a lone wolf in many ways. Okay, so I, I know there's similarities, but also differences between the world of Basil and the world of Hildebrand. I'll just call him Bob from this point forward. How about, you know who I'm talking about, Bob. Okay, so, so Hildebrand has a more out there idea. So Basil referred to himself as a member of the lunatic fringe, where his ideas of a collisional model with the insular superterrain is... You know, you're trying to overturn uh, 50 years of kind of a, a dogma. And apparently, Bob is a lunatic fringe to the lunatic fringe, as far as I can tell. But like I say, I'm just getting started. So what I want to do in the rem I'm already at the 11-minute mark. What I want to do here is try to share with you the geology of what I understand currently with Hildebrand, with Bob, because I've really been just looking at the 2009 paper. Let's see. And, and the other thing is I want to tell you a little bit more about my visit, just in case you see the interview and you're curious about a context for that. Yeah, I grabbed all the Hildebrand stuff that I have. I'm not even going to do it in order, I don't think. 
Now I should start with the paper that I was looking at most carefully in the last month. Here it is. So between the video interview with Bob and this radio episode talking about Bob, if you are officially excited by this, there is a website called roberthildebrand.com, all one word, roberthildebrand.com. And once you get there, it's a photography website that'll that'll be explained in, in the video interview because he does a lot of things besides geology. But if you click on publications, roberthildebrand.com, publications, that'll get you to a list of links getting to all these papers where you can read all these papers for uh, their open access, free, easy to find. You can download them onto your computer. You can print them out if you like. Okay, the one I've read as carefully as I can so far is 2009, the first major uh, Cordilleran paper by Bob Hildebrand. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, so he lists himself. Oh, interesting. I didn't even notice that. So in 2009, Bob is identifying himself as associated with the Department of Geology, Utah State University, Logan, Utah. Hmm. Title of the paper. Did westward subduction cause Cretaceous-Tertiary orogeny in the North American Cordilleran? Question mark. So I went through, you know, the this month before the Arizona trip. I'm, you know, spending I don't know 20 minutes every morning just kind of reading. It's pretty dense reading, writing down some notes, thinking. Next morning, same idea. And so by the time I visited with Bob a few more a few mornings ago, I felt like I had his 2009 paper kind of in my head. Well, in the interview, he says, yeah, I'm, I've kind of moved on. Like, I still like westward subduction. And I, I don't think I need to go back and do all that with you, do I? I assume you've been listening to these. The westward subduction idea is that you have ocean crust off the coast of North America, off the west coast of North America that has been subducting westward underneath some sort of island, as opposed to eastward subduction of ocean crust subducting beneath North America. That's not a new concept for us. And if, you, if you're an excellent radio student, you remember it's mostly Carr and Siglock I was talking about with westward subduction. Well, this is a totally different game. In other words, totally different approach talking about westward subduction. He's looking at the bedrock geology as opposed to the mantle tomography. But anyway, I, I, I felt like that's the place to start for me, or that was the place to start for me, and maybe the place to start for you as well. But my first question to Bob was, um, have, you, have your ideas evolved since 2009? And the answer was yes. So I think I am going to read all of his work chronologically the best that I can. So as a gift to me, but as I was leaving Bob's house, uh, he gave me a glossy uh, bound version of his 2013 special paper, 495, entitled Mesozoic Assembly of the North American Cordillera. So right off the bat, I'm off. I haven't read it carefully yet. In fact, I had 
found it and had printed it out in little sections for myself, but it was very kind of Bob to give me, I think, one of the last two copies he had. Of course, these things are incredibly expensive if you go through the Geological Society of America. Ridiculously expensive. I don't, okay, don't get on a side tangent, boy, but that's the... Don't. Okay, don't. So that's where I'm going next. And you're like, tell me about the geology. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm just trying to kind of give you a sense of what's out there waiting for you. Then I kind of lose it. There's a, there's a column by Paul Hoffman, uh, who lives in Victoria. I should try to find him. I think he's still with us. The column is called The Tooth of Time, the North American Cordillera from Tanya Atwater to Karin Siglock. But Bob is included in that uh, kind of column talking about the importance of this sexy new work. There's a 2014, just trying to give you a sense of what's out there written by this guy Hildebrand. Arc and slab failure magmatism in the Cordier and Batholith, the Cretaceous Peninsula Ranges Batholith of Southern and Baja California. Okay, so that's you know part one of two. I'm, I'm already starting to kind of get overwhelmed. This is the paper that's short and sweet, but we are going to dismantle or di uh, kind of dive deeply into for this coming winter when we talk about Baja BC. This is 2015 in GSA Today. Now Hildebrand says he's at University of California, Davis. I guess associated with Eldridge Moore somehow. Moore's somehow. Dismemberment and northward migration of the Cordilleran or origin. Baja BC resolved. Okay, well that pissed everybody off. All the Baja BC people have been working on it for their whole careers. And here comes this guy from, you know, some... Some outsider saying he's got it resolved. That's kind of ballsy to lay it out, lay it out like that. Two, uh, 2017, I think this is, yes. Another glossy special paper. This one I, I did purchase and had. Special paper 532. The tectonic setting and origin of Cretaceous Batholith within the North American Cordillera. The Case for Slab Failure Magmatism and Its Significance for Crustal Growth by Bob Hildebrand and Joe Whalen, Joseph Whalen. Let me finish my little survey here for you. Oh, I've got some slides that Bob put together for a talk. I don't even remember how I got these. Uh, I guess it's one of his talks he gave at a national meeting. The Mid-Cretaceous Oregonian Event, Closure of a Marginal Basin by Westward Subduction. And then finally, published just last year in 2021, broken into two parts, the Mid-Cretaceous Peninsular Ranges Orogeny, a new slant on Cordilleran tectonics, question mark. Part one is Mexico to Nevada. Part two is Northern United States and Canada. Okay, so I'll share with you where I am. I don't know how many pages we're talking about, how many beautiful maps. I mean, I, I realized from from Hilda, from Bob, he's he has an artistic slant to him. He's a he has been a photographer. He's he owned a record store for a while. So I I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying that I'm artistic, but I I do appreciate a certain look or a certain kind of aesthetic to something. And I could that's the first thing that that uh, struck me. I don't know how Hildebrand, I keep calling him Hildebrand. I guess I'm, com I'm more comfortable calling him that for some reason. 
I don't know how he makes these incredibly attractive maps and figures, but he does. And those alone are worth your attention, just to see these maps. They're just elegant and, and, and simple. He has a way of synthesizing all this data graphically. But then there's the writing as well. So I can't tell, since I've only really carefully read the 2009 paper so far, is this just the same stuff over and over and over again? Like the concept here. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the, I tried 10 minutes ago, but I'll try again. Hildebrand saying, look, it's not an eastward subduction story. It's not these exotic terrains coming in one at a time. Okay, you've heard that many times before. And we're basically taking this 50-year-old tectonic model and saying it's, it's not applicable to all these observations and data sets that we have now in the American West, the North American West. But Hildebrand says all of the exotic terrains were hooked up out in the ocean. Not some of them, all of them. Now, I'm going to record. This is almost like a personal diary now. So I'll eventually come back to this one recorded in late March of 2022 and go, boy, I guess I didn't really get what he was saying. Yeah, I fully admit that I'm, I'm just starting with this. But as I understand it currently and just jotting down my what I think I understand uh, Hildebrand saying 15 years ago is that essentially all of the exotic terrains were hooked up out in the ocean, making this ribbon continent, as he calls it. And he's given that ribbon continent, a continent shaped like a ribbon, coming down through the East Pacific Ocean. And he's calling that ribbon continent Rubia, R-U-B-I-A. And so Hildebrand says, look, you've got all this geology in North America's West saying that there was a simple collision between Rubia and North America. And you're like, okay, does that sound that radical? Well, it is radical in this sense. To do that, to have all of the exotic terrains connect, welded together out in the ocean, and then to have everything coming in starting 123 million years ago. Now, that's a date that he has backed off of, and I think he's a little bit more tied into the 100 million year event like Basil Tikoff is these days. But back in 2009, Hildebrand's talking about 123 as the beginning of this accretion event. And I'm not sure he's really saying that uh, the ribbon continent, no, he isn't saying. So he's saying the ribbon continent is stationary and North America is getting closer and closer to this stationary ribbon continent and that 123 million years ago, North America starts approaching the trench that's on the eastern edge of the ribbon continent. I think I've lost most of you just in that those last three sentences, but I'll, I'll continue. The radical thing to me, as I understand it so far, is that to do that, Bob wants the old west coast of North America much farther east than anybody's talking about it to this point. Like, I've spent time on that in, in Washington, in northwestern Montana, and saying, look, if you go to the Belt Supergroup, for instance, if you go to all these 
beach or coastal rocks in Glacier National Park, for instance, that's the old west coast of North America. Everybody says that. Everybody says that. And Hildebrand says, yeah, those are coastal rocks. From the east coast of Rubia. And not the old west coast of North America. And therefore, you have to go east of Glacier Park to find the old shoreline, to find the suture, as it's called. If you're going to have a simple collisional model, and you have Rubia and North America colliding, you have to find this specific place where you can trace your finger down the map from Alaska down to Mexico. Where exactly is that suture? And I'm starting to realize he's got it through Montana, like central Montana, I think. He's got the suture zone coming like Utah or even further east. I don't know. And, you know, he says the suture isn't at the surface. Like there's all these thrusted, these thrust packages that have been shoved up and over the suture so you can't see it. And so now it gets a little fishy, like I don't quite see it there. So I'm, I'm reporting that I have struggles, good struggles, like I, I think this is worth my time for a number of reasons. I, I'm not even sure I can verbalize them at the moment. Well, I should try. I'm talking about them. Why am I spending, why am I just starting to spend time on Hildebrand and why am I probably going to continue reading and thinking about Hildebrand's work uh, for the next year? Okay, let me try. Thank you, for, thank you for listening to all this, by the way. I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to get you to, to look at some of these papers. I, I think they're worth your time because I think I have decided they're worth my time. Okay, well, I'll try just in real time with you. Number one, I think it's worth studying Bob's work because most everybody doesn't study Bob's work. Let's start there. So in this interview, he's talking about the fact that people are just kind of ignoring his work. Like, it's there's so much there. There are so many pages. There are so many maps. There are so many figures. It's just, it's just the sheer volume of the work. And you're like, I don't have time to look at all this. I'll glance at the abstract and look at a couple maps and then say, well, this is obviously wrong. I'm just making up a general person now. And then I would say to that person, well, why is it wrong? And they go, well, I, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, it's so different. You're saying that the beach rocks of Montana are, are the beach of an old lost ribbon continent out in the Pacific? That's, I, can't, I can't even begin to assess that. So that's number one, that people are just ignoring the work. Now, I think there's enough there to at least study it. And I do think I need to do this. I'm probably wrong on this name, but I think there's a guy named Craig Jones, who I don't know, not even sure that's the right name, possibly taught a geology seminar at the University of Colorado. Why am I saying this out loud? I guess to, to force myself to reach out to him. I think that's the right name and possibly the right school. And I think I've heard that Craig Jones 
spent a whole semester studying Hildebrand's work with his students, basically doing about what I'm trying to do right now, what I'm thinking about doing right now this summer. Maybe I should, yeah, maybe I should contact this guy, Craig Jones, if he exists, see if that's true. And if it's true, like, what did he decide? Or what did, did he have any connection to Hildebrand? If no, I'm even more intrigued. Okay, I don't know where to go. Oh, yeah, I've got to finish my list. So, number one, I want to spend time on Hildebrand because I don't, I don't think anybody's reading his stuff. And I just, I, I would like to give his work a little bit more shine. Second reason is that I'm going to be doing Baja BC shows this winter, and Hildebrand is a proponent of Baja BC. I mean, essentially, Baja BC is the least of the radical ideas that are out there, according to, according to Bob. So if we, can, if we can wrap our minds around some of the stuff Bob's talking about, and then suddenly we're talking about moving a little bit of Mexico up to British Columbia, I don't think that's going to be such a hard sell. Third reason, Bob uh, values the paleomagnetism data. And I'm seeing more and more that that could be my most obtainable goal, is to learn as much as I can about paleomag and try to help some people see, possibly some geologists see, that, that it's ridiculous just to cast off that paleomag. I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll cast it off. Maybe I'll learn as much as I can about paleomag and say, yeah, everybody's right. I guess this stuff's not, not reliable. But I don't think I'm going to say that. Where am I on my list? I don't know. I guess my last list is that now I know Hildebrand, at least from my interview with him in his backyard a few mornings ago, I'm going to try to involve him, if possible, this winter in the series. And he will be a significant voice, I think, if I can develop a rapport with him. And I think I, I did that. So let me finish this episode by giving you a little bit of uh, more detail on my visit. So, you know, I'm vacationing with my wife. We're staying in an Airbnb in Tucson. Um, I contacted Bob maybe a month ago and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be in Tucson, actually, with my wife for, for, for vacation, but uh, would you have a morning where I could drop by your house and take 90 minutes of your time? And he said, sure, that sounds great. So then I had to talk to Liz and say, are you okay if... Uh, if I disappear for 90 minutes on a Wednesday morning and so I can go visit with this geologist. She said, that sounds fine. Why don't you drop me off at the Tucson Botanical Garden and uh, then you can run over to Bob's house and interview him and then make sure to come back and get me as soon as you're done. And that's what happened. Plenty of traffic on Grant Avenue, Grant Street, you know, but uh, that worked out okay. So I tell you that background because I got the home address for Bob I showed up about 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning, whatever day that was, earlier this week. And we walked right through his house, got out to the backyard, and I was all business. I did a little bit of chatter, but I said, I'm on a bit of a time schedule here, Bob. I, I, my wife's expecting me, expecting me back at the botanical garden at 11 o'clock, so I think we should just go for this. And I'd never met the guy. 
And the, the benefit of YouTube is that he has a sense of who I am. He's seen me interview other people. He's seen a few of the live streams over the winter and that sort of thing. He knows I've been dealing with Basil and a few others. So that's all super helpful to me because if I was truly a guy out of nowhere, I think there would be much more apprehension, much more caution by these folks that I'm interviewing me. But because I'm so out there in a video form, I can, I can pull this off um, without a whole lot of effort, I have to say. So, you know, what was my effort? Well, I read a little bit of his 2009 paper and not a whole lot more. And I purposely didn't write out a bunch of questions or anything. I just told him, we're going to mic you up. I'm going to get my little uh, gizmo rolling and um, get you sitting in the sun, even though it's a warm morning, and we'll just go for it. And, you know, it was 90 minutes. I think I took about five minutes out because just as we were wrapping up and I asked him to get share his website, I uh, thought it was a good time for me to break it off because I glanced at my watch. I had to go back and get Liz. And then he ramped up and started talking about some other stuff. So I cut that last part out, which I thought was just kind of a tack on that wasn't super helpful. But pretty much everything else, there, there's not one edit cut in there. And um, as I was hustling to get out, he wanted to visit for another hour off camera, you know, and go back and forth about this and that. But I, I, I was... I was telling him the truth. I had to go get my, <laughs> had to go to the, the botanical garden as soon as possible. I didn't want my wife being pissed off at me, and she wasn't. So, he's, he's got some health issues now. He shared with the during the video f uh, effort that uh, uh, his wife and his daughter and he got, all got COVID. Uh, back in December of 2020, and he's kind of had some long COVID stuff, and then some heart issues, and. So he just doesn't have the energy that he had before. I don't know how old he is. I'm guessing he's in his 70s. I don't really know. But I'm hoping that he will continue. But when I brought that up, I could just see the look in his eye like, boy, I don't know how much more I can do. Especially when there's really hard any evidence of traction with this work that he's doing. So in my own small way, I suppose I'm just trying to get a little traction for some of his work. It could be that I get to the point where I read all this stuff this summer or this spring and this summer, and I'll go, yeah, I guess this isn't very helpful. I guess this is all just the same model that he's clinging to that he proposed in 2009. But the way I'll finish this episode with you is that I, I think I see from him that he has been evolving. Many, he, I think he admitted that the stuff that I'm familiar with with 2009, he's, he's backed away from some of that. He didn't see some of these connections. Now, is he getting feedback from critical readers in a good way? I don't know. Is it all just him and Basil and Basil's trying to talk him off the ledge here and there? I don't know. But as I read and get closer and closer to present day with Hildebrand's work, I will be very interested, even saying this out loud, I'll be very interested as I, as I look at these papers right now, physically just sitting here next to the computer. I'll be looking for changes. And I'm hoping I see changes. I'm hoping I see the evolution of ideas. Because I think he's using data accurately. 
In other words, I think he's being true to the data. What I'm hoping it's not is him being stubborn, I mean, to the opposite of science, that he's just saying, this is my model. Why isn't anybody listening to me? I'm going to write 42 papers saying the same thing. And screw all you people who just keep ignoring what I'm saying. I hope that's not what I'm going to read. I'm hoping I continue to get more and more data recognized, individual observations that I've made independently that suddenly become a little bit more clear in my mind as I read his stuff. And I don't know, possibly if I get super excited with some of Bob's work, I'll try to get some of the dream teamers to look a little bit more carefully or a little bit more openly at some of this work, kind of like I did in that session Z. I wasn't like peddling Bob's messages necessarily, but I was into this slab failure thing. I got to say that's effect. That's a, a you know, um, that's attractive to me. Here's the last thing I'm going to say. I posted the video interview with Bob Hildebrand. Oh, I've lost track of the days. I guess it was Friday. Is that true? Yeah, it must have been Friday morning. And it's been watched a bunch, and a bunch of people have left comments. And, you know, some of the comments on the YouTube video are, are over the top. It's like, what a great man. This is, you know, you know, they haven't even read any of this stuff yet. But they like the fact that he's thinking outside the box, quote, unquote. That's great. There's some other comments where on the other side, they're not ridiculing him, but they're saying basically, why, why did I watch that? I don't understand anything any stuff that that guy was talking about. This is this is almost like a, a pointless video. They didn't say it like that, but that's, of course, what I think they were saying, some of them. And this is the last thing I'll say. I've learned over the years how to interview people, especially geologists. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this a while. I don't need to go into the details there, but I started interviewing people 20 years ago on video form, in video form. And back then I was so nervous and wanted to make sure the interview went well that I had all everything written out. I have all these questions. I had my whole game plan. They're going to say this. Then I was going to ask this question. And basically I wanted to control the whole thing. And Brian Atwater, who I've talked about before, University of Washington, USGS, Tsunami, guy. He's the first guy to just say, basically, let me just do my own thing. Let me, let me just talk. And you can prompt me here and there, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk. And in the moment it felt terrible. I'm talking about interviewing Brian Atwater in probably 2006 or something. It felt terrible. I'm like, this guy's hijacked the interview, but that was a tremendous learning experience for me. Just let these guys go. Let these gals go. And when they take a breath, you know, step in and steer it a little bit. But that's the best way to interview somebody. So I'm trying to say that that Hildebrand interview, if you go find it on my YouTube channel, is long. It's hardly any of me. It's mostly him. And yeah, he's all over the place. And yeah, he's talking about places that I didn't know about. And instead of stepping in and going, wait a minute, I don't know where that is. Wait a minute, what is that? I didn't want to break the flow. And I think that's one of the most valuable things an interviewer can do.
And I didn't edit it either. I didn't cut out all sorts of stuff and interject all sorts of other things. My ultimate hope is that if we go back to that Hildebrand interview a number of times over the next year, it will make more and more sense. So we'll see. How significant a chapter will the Bob Hildebrand experience, <laughs> maybe that's what I should call it, the Robert Hildebrand experience, the Jimi Hendrix experience, how much will this experience influence what I'm doing in the next year? It might be a significant amount, I'm just not sure. But in this a little bit longer than normal podcast episode, I hope you got a sense of my excitement and also confusion in these early stages of studying the work of Robert S. Hildebrand, Tucson, Arizona resident. <laughs> okay, that's enough for today. Thank you, dear listener. I love you, and goodbye.